Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to episode number 170 of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline, as always. And Tony, the weirdest college football season that I've seen in my lifetime, certainly don't want to speak for you, is finally over. The national champion has been crowned, and games on the gridiron are officially in the rearview mirror. Obviously, we'll now shift our focus completely towards the draft, Not that we ever really discuss things that aren't draft related, but in the end, here's to things getting as close to back to normal as possible by the summer and next season going just a little bit smoother than this one. The fact is this, uh, that we got a a season in with just about every conference and most of those conferences got a full schedule in. Some of them, obviously the Pac-12, the Big Ten uh, didn't play full schedules, but the fact that we got this much football from division one, I, I think is a major victory. Yeah, it's weird, but I mean, look at where we are today compared to where we were in the middle of August when conference after conference was saying that they were going to cancel their schedules. And we were looking at a 2020 college football season that was basically going to be cut, you know, in half from the division one uh, point of view cut in a f- overall in a fourth, if you want to, because 90% of division one, double a FCS didn't even play. So I think overall it's got to be considered a victory. Yeah. I mean, especially as you said, like what we were talking about in August was, are we going to get a season? You know, what are we going to do um, on the show? If there's not a season, how are we going to like handle these things? Um, and then obviously everything kind of came together as, as best it could. I mean, you know, obviously all the leagues have been fighting it with protocols and, and things like that. And obviously college sports are just a whole different animal because these aren't professional athletes who, um, you know, can just kind of stay where they are and, you know, college just, there's so many more moving parts, but yeah, I mean, all in all, as weird as it was, and you know, it certainly was weird. It was uh, certainly better than the alternative of not having any football. And I think we can all be happy about that. And the fact is this is that the conferences that came in with the best plans, the ACC, the SEC, even the Big 12 started on time, although the SEC was a couple of weeks late. You know, those were the ones that had a great amount of success. Granted, Ohio State played in the, in the national title game. But overall, when you look at it from an overall point of view, I mean, the Big 10 had its struggles and the Pac-12 had its struggles. And I think because they were so, you know, up and down, herky-jerky, if you will, as to whether or not they were going to have a season – and there was they, they kind of threw protocols into into place at the last minute. I mean, even if you remember when the Pac-12 announced that they were going to start their season in November, many of the players in that conference were screaming and yelling because they didn't know exactly what the protocols were, what the COVID protocols uh, were going to be. So great to see everything. Uh, I wish it was a little bit more organized with the Big Ten, with the Pac-12, so we could have had maybe a little bit of a longer season. I wish, obviously... Uh, the FCS Division One AA had a few more teams playing, although maybe we'll see them come late February, early March. But overall, uh, you know, considering uh, the situation at hand, I think I think uh, they all did a good job. Now we'll get to this week's show in just a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. 
the Super Bowl is right around the corner as the NFL playoffs heat up and we say goodbye to the college gridiron. So if you're looking to place a bet on any of the sports going on, betonline.ag is the best and only place to lock in. Just as we get done talking about this year's Heisman race, next year's odds are officially out with Oklahoma quarterback Spencer Rattler leading the way. Which is kind of unusual because when you look at it, Spencer Rattler lost a bunch of his uh, weapons. Ramondre Stevenson graduating and now his top, one of his top weapons, Charles Rambo, transferring. I would have gone with Sam Howell, but you could say the same thing about Sam Howell of North Carolina. And for what it's worth, Tony, Sam Howell is fifth in the early Heisman odds. For more game spreads, totals, team player, and coaching props like those Heisman ones we just discussed, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Now, obviously, saying goodbye to the College Gridiron means the national championship game is in the books. A resounding 52-24 victory for the Alabama Crimson Tide over the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, no Tommy Togier or Tyreek Smith for Ohio State along the defensive line in this game. And I'm not saying that adding those two players in would have stopped the train that is this Alabama offense. Because, I mean, really what the Crimson Tide did on offense this year, I mean, people were talking about the LSU Tigers last season being arguably the best offense in college football history. I mean, the 2020 Alabama Crimson Tide really put forth an argument this year. I mean, last year you had Joe Burrow, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase. This year at Alabama, you have Mac Jones, Najee Harris, Devontae Smith. I mean, if Jalen Waddell doesn't get hurt early in the season, you throw him in there. Imagine what this offense could have accomplished this season if Jalen Waddell was still there because you obviously saw the drop-off to guys like John Mechie with Waddell on the sidelines. I mean, just a truly dominant, not just performance in this game, but a truly dominant season from the Alabama offense. I, I, I mean – Basically, but from a team point of view, I know that everyone was uh, ragging on the Alabama defense and they were easy, easy to score on after that Mississippi game. But even in the Mississippi game, they won by two touchdowns. So it, it, really, when you when you break, you go through their uh, their their schedule all year. I mean, they were consistently winning by anywhere from two touchdowns or more. The the out uh, the uh, SEC title game. On the scoreboard, it was close, but really Alabama led the uh, led that contest from the, from the start, and, and there was no looking back. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the defense, whether it had an up-and-down type of season, which it did. It allowed a lot of points at times, but in this game, it looked like at the beginning that there might be some points scored by Ohio State. It was a little bit back and forth, but the second quarter, Alabama just really took control of the game. Justin Fields was really up-and-down. In this one, early on, looked pretty good. He's putting balls where they need to be, driving his team down the field. Then in that second quarter, when Alabama continued to just put points on the scoreboard, Justin Fields couldn't put a drive together. I mean, Alabama feels like they had the ball the entire time. Justin Fields just could not keep the offense moving. Um, The Alabama defense, particularly Christian Barmore up front, really disruptive, really getting into the backfield, really beating this Ohio State offensive line that we've talked about a lot as being just truly dominant. And while they had their moments, guys like Wyatt Davis, guys like Josh Myers had their moments against someone like Christian Barmore. I mean, Barmore was a game wrecker in this one. I think he had five tackles, 
one for loss, sorry, two for loss, one sack. I mean, just gets in very quickly into the backfield, showed some speed around the edge. I mean, moves with his hands. Barmore is just an extremely disruptive player up front. Super impressed by him the last couple of weeks. Played very well. I think it was a combination of a couple of things. Barmore obviously had his moments during the game. I thought overall the, uh, the Ohio State offensive line was not good. Uh, Mumford was getting beaten on the inside. I thought this was one of the worst performances of the year from Josh Myers. He wasn't bad, but he wasn't what I expected. I thought Wyatt Davis before the injury was really struggling. Just again, it wasn't that he was terrible. It's just I expected more from him. We have to see where he is with that injury uh, because it looked pretty bad from uh, right from the get-go, even though the, the announcers, if you were watching the game, were announcing, were announcing that it was a defensive tackle from uh, Ohio State that was on the field. Uh, and, and it was more than Barmore because their defensive ta- the Alabama defensive tackle for Darian Mathis also had a strong game. I, I think lending more credence or, or more substance to what I said, I thought it was just a bad, uh, very, uh, very disappointing performance by the Ohio State offensive line, except for that second drive where Justin Fields they marched them down the field and, and was pinpoint accurate with many of his throws. Uh, the, the flip side, you know, Devontae Smith, everyone's talking about what a great game he had. He absolutely did have a great game. This was probably the worst performance I've ever seen from Sean Wade. I mean, he made some nice plays up the field. He made some nice plays against the run, against screen passes, but he was awful in coverage. I mean, it, was, it almost looked like he was doing one of those seven-on-seven warm-up drills that we see at the Senior Bowl. It's like he was going half speed and Devonta Smith was going full speed. I, at times, it looked like uh, Sean Wade thought they were playing two-hand touch, not tackle, uh, which also I thought made it much easier for Mac Jones to connect with uh, Devonta Smith. I mean, there was one ball up the sideline with uh, Sean Wade where it looks like he is legitimately jogging while Devontae Smith is just motoring by him. Um, It's just kind of shocking to see because then he's in bail technique and, you know, they'll run an out or they'll run a curl or something like that. And he's caught still going down the field. So he's not staying with guys down the field, down the sideline, and he's not pressuring them on comeback routes and things like that. I mean, the only thing Sean Wade did well, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, did well against screen passes, came up really nice on the first drive, had a really good tackle for loss on a screen pass. I thought he did all right covering in-breaking routes, uh, but anything that required using the sideline, which it seems like he just does not understand how to use the sideline as an extra defender. I know that he's played in the slot a lot during his career, and this was his first year seeing more time outside with all the defections, the Jeff Akutas and the Damon Arnett's moving on to the NFL from the Ohio State secondary. But I mean, for what Sean Wade showed this year, I think I said something earlier this year on the show that called him a lock first round prospect. I mean, that that is kind of a joke at this point. Like, I, it'd be shocking to see him go in the first round with the way he played this season. I mean, he's really looking like a guy who's going to be confined to the slot because he did not show any ability to really cover outside this season. As you said, this was his worst game, but it's not like he had that many good games prior to this to really hang its hat on but this is one this is a game that everyone's going to remember because like you said you know as i pointed out it looked like he was going half speed and you really don't i should say i never really like to grade a player off of a single game but the nonchalance and the seemingly lack of awareness in this game was terrible you mentioned about how a lot of people thought he was a lock first rounder going into the season i was one of them there were a lot of scouts who great underclassmen who gave Wade a late third round pick. Uh, these are guys that I talked to over the summer and 
That's what he looked like. It'll, it'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see. On the other hand, from the Ohio State point of view, I thought uh, Baron Browning played very well. He's a forceful athlete. He's a terrific blitzer. He's an outstanding uh, – he's got outstanding movement skill. He's fast in every direction, can make plays in space. The thing with Browning is he's very inconsistent. You go back to a sophomore film, and he looked like a, a star in the making. And then as a junior in 2019, he barely saw the field because they had so many good linebackers at Ohio State. Breaks back into the starting lineup uh, this year. I, I thought probably the national title game was one of his best performances of the entire season. You saw why some scouts grade him from an athletic point of view and a potential point of view as a first-round pick. Uh, the Browning was terrific from an Ohio State team that gave up so many points. Ohio State defense, I should say, that gave up so many points. Yeah, I mean, that forced fumble he had early where he also recovered it. Uh, you know, you mentioned him being forced on the blitz. I mean, that pretty much alone kept Ohio State in the game as long as they were, which was maybe about 20 minutes. It wasn't a game for that long. But without Baron Browning making that big play and setting up Ohio State for another score, I mean, this game gets out of hand way earlier. Um, sticking at the linebacker position for Ohio State, I mean, tough Borland, 14 tackles. Uh, obviously, the guy was exposed on that Devontae Smith touchdown where, you know, you don't ask tough Borland to cover Devontae Smith up the scene. That's just unfair. Uh, that's not, you can't really hold that against tough Borland here. But, you know, as usual, making plays to the sideline, making plays in the middle of the field. Like, I thought tough Borland had a pretty good game. Considering, you know, listen, 14 tackles, it sounds great. He didn't play quite as well as those stats, but I do think he was in the right place at the right time. You mentioned Browning being a good athlete. Tough Borland is not quite the same level of athlete, but just like his brother Chris before him, um, you know, just a guy who knows where to be on the football field and a guy who probably won't go until the late rounds, but has a good chance to outperform wherever he goes in the draft. And one of the guys uh, he was making a lot of tackles against was someone who just continually impresses and a guy who I absolutely love, Najee Harris. As I've said about Najee Harris, he's a first-round talent who plays a second-day position or a day-two position, I should say. But, you know, you look at his body of work the past two years, you look at what he did this year, you look at how he performed in the national title game, and you got to imagine that some team takes, uh, 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 takes Harris – in the late part of round one, because he absolutely uh, deserves it. I mean, a big thumper on the inside who's got terrific quickness for a bigger back to get around the corner, outstanding pass catcher. I mean, as I tweeted uh, during the game, if Najee Harris is there at the top of round two, the running back needy New York Jets should jump all over this guy because he is a complete three down player. He shows up every single week to play and Everyone wants to talk about Devonta Smith's performance, understandably so. Devonta Smith winning the Heisman Trophy, understand that. But again, you know, Najee Harris was, was right there with him at a position that really, you know, doesn't have those electrifying plays or those huge stats. Uh, another terrific performance by Harris. Yeah, and I mean, coming into the season – a lot of the talk was Najee Harris versus Travis Etienne. I don't really know that that talk is still out there right now because Najee Harris just had such a superlative season. I mean, as you said, what he shows as a receiver in this game, seven catches, 79 yards, 
one touchdown, two scores on the ground, 22 carries, only 79 yards. So he wasn't, you know, breaking big runs or anything like that. And sure, he's not going to run a 4-4, but it's the running back position. You have plenty of guys succeed running 4-6, 4-6-5. And for what it's worth, I do not think Najee Harris is a 4-6. I think he's somewhere in the 4-5s there, which is plenty fast for his size, for the fact that he can bang at the goal line, for the fact that he has receiver-like ball skills. I mean, we said this about Josh Jacobs a couple of years ago. Obviously, the Raiders don't really use Josh Jacobs quite like they should in terms of being a receiving back. It would be disappointing to see an NFL team take Najee Harris and kind of fit him into the same role that the Raiders have done with Josh Jacobs because, I mean, this guy is a stud. I think you can line him up wide and actually legitimately have him run routes. You can throw end zone back shoulder fades to him. He's shown the ability to make those plays. So, I mean, he's the complete package. And as much as Travis Etienne is an exciting, explosive player, I really think the gap between the two of those guys has widened very, very much as the season has gone on. You know, even if Harris runs a four five five, who cares? He is so quick for a bigger back and that first five to 10 yards, more five yards than 10 yards. Let me, let me pull that back. Uh, that he's able to get a step on guys and really even turn the corner. Uh, besides the, um, the pass catching and the blocking, um, really, really has done a good job. Let me say this. In the past, I've been very critical of Nick Saban, the fact that he puts injured players on the field, which shorten their careers at the next level. Guys I've mentioned in the past is Barrett Jones. If you remember the uh, center, the guy who was – predicted to be a top 45 pick who played in the national championship game with a list frack fracture and list Frank fracture in his foot. It turned out to be a fourth round pick, never really lived up to expectations of what people thought in large part because of the injury. The other, the other player would be the defensive tackle, Josh Chapman, another guy people thought could be a day two pick fifth rounder played in the national title game with a knee injury and then blowing out his knee and having a more severe knee injury in that national title game never basically lived up to expectations because of the injury. And, and we saw what happened last year with Tua Tagliavoa. When Tagliavoa was on the field when with two minutes left in, in the half and Alabama was up what, by what, 35 points? I got to wonder, why the hell was Jalen Waddle on the field, especially in the second half? You know, that second half opens up. Devonta Smith goes out with an arm injury or something like that. Alabama's up by 18 points. They're driving down the field. They, they chewed up seven minutes on the clock and Jalen Waddle is hobbling on the field. What is the purpose of having Jalen Waddle on the field? I've said this time and time again, this is the story that needs to be written about how a lot of these coaches Saban does it all the time. Uh, it's been an issue at TCU with different players. They put guys on the field with injuries when they shouldn't be on the field. They talked about the announcers talked about how Jalen Waddle uh, you know, discussed this with his family and discussed this with Nick Saban about, you know, whether or not he was going to play. The guy should not have been on the field. You got to think about his next level future A receiver with a significant uh, ankle injury, talking about pins in his ankles. I, I, it, it was just, it was infuriating to see that, but it's, it's not untypical because we've seen that constantly from Saban. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. It's different for you. It's different for me. One thing is certain, every day there's an opportunity to win. Just like Scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab and go, every day giftable, every day fun. The new lucky number Scratcher from the Virginia Lottery. 32 chances to win $500,000 plus four bonus games. Stop by your closest retailer and check it out. 
For odds and more information, visit VALottery.com. Yeah, and I mean, as you said, like, you know, this is Jalen Waddle wants to be out there. He's a competitor. I mean, if he doesn't want to be out there, that is also a problem. But you have doctors, you have team personnel that are there to say, Jalen Waddle, you're not healthy enough to play. I mean, even that first play where they kind of, where Mac Jones like shovels it to him um, as he's moving up in the pocket and he goes for about 15, 17 yards. He's limping at the end of the play. I mean, he can't make it one play without limping. I mean, if you're an NFL scout, you have to love the tenacity. You have to love the fact that he wants to be out there, that he wants to try to help his team in any way that he can, even if he's extremely limited. So it's not a bad thing for his draft evaluation or anything like that from that perspective, obviously, unless he makes the injury worse, in which case that is a bad thing for his draft evaluation. But in the end, I mean, the doctors are there to protect these kids from themselves. They want to play. They will always want to play and they will want to play hurt. And the doctors are there to say, you know what? The risk here far outweighs the reward. We, we know you worked really hard to get to this point. It's great that you did, but we just, we just can't take this risk here with your future. It's not even the doctors. I, I mean, even Saban, uh, the whole nation could see that this guy was not a hundred percent that this guy's, you know, limping around the field and, and they're talking about it. How it's some great story. He's got screws in his ankles and he, and he returns and there's no reason for him to be out there. Now, speaking of the national title game, we're going to go on the record this week. And once again, we'll talk about Justin Fields. There's a reason that we didn't really talk about him over the last 10, 15 minutes or so. And we've discussed Fields against Zach Wilson. Then we kind of discussed that again when we were talking about what the Jets should do with the number two overall pick. And now the third time's a charm, or is it for Justin Fields, who certainly did not put his best foot forward in Monday's loss to Alabama after a truly exceptional performance against Clemson, where he went for six touchdowns. Obviously, some high highs and low lows over the past two weeks for Fields, and, and really over the course of the 2020 season. So, Tony, it's time to go on the record. Will Monday's performance hurt Justin Fields' draft stock? I'm going to say no. It's sort of like the way that the performance against uh, the week before, Trevor Lawrence's performance against Ohio State's not going to hurt his draft stock, although I don't think anything's going to uh... – uh, hurt Tre- Trevor Lawrence's draft stock, except something severe, which we hope doesn't happen. But, you know, Fields did not play well. There's no doubt about it, Ohio State. But we just documented how the rest of the team didn't play well. You know, uh, how uh, uh, there were, I-, I thought their offensive line did not play well. Trey Sermon, we didn't mention, we, you know, went out early in the game uh, with a seemingly uh, serious shoulder injury. Uh, so he didn't play poor. He didn't play poorly. He didn't give the game away. But I think it was just the entire situation with Ohio State. They didn't who did the Ohio State offense who didn't play well. Uh, I do think that Zach Wilson looms larger right now, uh, and, and it's going to be basically a toss up between those two. But I don't think scouts came out of the uh, national title game downgrading Justin Fields off of his performance. I'll agree simply because we discussed before the Clemson game that the player who had the most riding on the college football playoff was Justin Fields. And if you look at what he did in totality, he did very well. If you include the Clemson game and you include the Alabama game, I mean, overall, I would say based on what we were talking about before that first game, that he helped himself from where he was then, mostly because of what he did against Clemson. Um, He wasn't a disaster, as you said, against Alabama. He didn't throw an interception. Uh, Yeah, he struggled to move the ball. He was six for 15 at one point, finished 17 for 33. There's, you know, some passes that were just not on the money. Uh, You know, Garrett Wilson, he had him in the end zone. 
Wilson had got separation from Patrick Sertan and he just didn't complete the pass. It was there for him. He didn't complete it. And we have seen that from him throughout the season, but that's exactly kind of the point here is that we've seen that throughout the season. So if his performance in this game hurt his draft stock, then the reality is that the performance this season is what hurt his draft stock. And that's just kind of another layer and another wrinkle into that because what Justin Fields did, or I mean, rather what he didn't do is take over the game like he did the prior game. Now the prior game, uh, you know, he had an offensive line that kept him extremely clean. He had time to throw. He had receivers who were getting open downfield and he was putting the ball in the bucket 60 yards down the field. We've seen Justin Fields do that. We know he's capable of that. He had no chance to do that in this game based on the fact that he just didn't have the time to throw, but you know, he showed enough in terms of flashes and the ability to use his legs to create things. You know, he was just overmatched in this game as was the kind of the entire Ohio state team, which is interesting after what they did the week before to just see the stark difference between a matchup against Clemson and a matchup against Alabama. But no, I would say this performance doesn't hurt his draft stock unless you thought last week's performance really elevated it. I wouldn't say he's shown flashes. He's been pretty good. The flashes have been on the negative side more than the positive side, because for the most part, he's been a, a top rated passer. You know, the one thing that he didn't have this game, which, which you uh, failed to uh, failed to mention was, was Trey Sermon. And, you know, that is a, big portion of the equation for the Ohio State uh, offense, especially, you know, in the lead up to this game. Now, moving into this week's conference film review and heading to the Pac-12, obviously an abbreviated season for the conference. So there's really only so much film to go on. And that's especially true for the first school, Arizona State, just four games played for the Sun Devils. We saw cornerback Jack Jones ball out against his former team, USC. Intriguing wide receiver Frank Darby left that game due to injury, had just six catches overall on the season. What did you glean from the Sun Devils film, Tony? From what I understand, Jack Jones, who's in a bit of hot water, plans to return to Arizona State in 2021. So he's not going to be in this year's draft. Frank Darby had his ups and downs. Really, the production wasn't there on a consistent basis, although the uh, quarterback had some problems. But when he was good, he was real good. Uh, Darby came into the season with me great as a fourth round pick. I've had to downgrade him to a six rounder, but I think he's got some great upside potential. I will tell you the, uh, the, their other cornerback, Chase Lucas, who's a senior was very impressive to me. He's got decent size. He's better facing the action. Doesn't have great speed, but Chase Lucas, who was graded as a free agent by scouts coming into the season, I firmly believe is going to fall into the late rounds of the draft. Now the Cal bears, another team that played just four games in those games, another Chase, quarterback Chase Garbers, 771 yards, six touchdowns, and three interceptions. Cornerback Cameron Bynum had an interception, couple pass breakups, wasn't challenged too often in the game that we focused on against the Oregon wide receivers. How did Cal's top prospects look in this shortened season, Tony? Very impressed with Chase Garbers. From what I understand, he's going back, which I think is his best bet. has got to get a little bit bigger, but I thought for the most part, his accuracy, his pass placement, the ability to make all the throws, uh, was top-notch. I really like what I saw from Bynum on film. I've upgraded him to into the third round. Everyone talked about his speed, and I don't know that he's going to run very fast, but he played fast. When I watched the film this year, when I watched the Cal film, he was not getting beat deep. I mean, he was able to cover the receivers downfield, uh, which I think, and he's got terrific ball skills. He's got excellent size. So I see there's no reason why Bynum should not go into the third round. Jake Curran, Entered the season as a priority free agent, the right tackle. He's probably going to land in that sixth round area. 
He's got terrific size. He's strong. He's an outstanding run blocker. Whether or not he's going to be a right tackle or a guard at the next level remains to be seen, but he's going to get drafted. Uh, uh, Kying Deng, the uh, outside linebacker, is going back for uh, another season. He's going to take advantage of the, uh, the NC2A rule, which gives him another year of eligibility. I think it's the right move. You know, he's 6'5", 225 pounds, and they had him playing in space. And while he didn't do a, a bad job, he just struggled at times because he's more of a 3-4 outside linebacker that you want to line up uh, at the line of scrimmage, use him up the field, and only occasionally play him in space as opposed to what, they, what Cal did with him this year, which was almost always play him in space. Now moving east to Colorado, where potential late-round linebacker Nate Landman racked up 53 tackles in five games, as is his usual, before an injury ended his season all over the field like he always is. Other than Landman, though, anything stand out with the Buffaloes to you, Tony? William Sherman, a guy who, an underclassman, fourth-year junior, who was already declared for the draft, someone who played, primarily played left tackle for Colorado, was outstanding as a freshman, watched his game almost fall off a cliff last year, returned this year, and played really well. I don't think he's going to be a left tackle at the next level because he's barely six foot three. I think he's going to be a very good zone-blocking guard, showed a lot of tenacity, showed much better strength at the point this year. Right now, I have him graded as a fourth, fifth-round prospect. Uh, and again, college left tackle, who I project as a zone-blocking guard. Now, since most of Oregon's top prospects opted out of this shortened season, we're going to skip the Ducks and go right to their in-state rivals, the Oregon State Beavers. And speaking of falling off a cliff, Hamaka Rashad Jr., 22 and a half tackles for loss and 14 sacks last season. This season, in seven games, two tackles for loss, no sacks. And because he played seven games, you can't really use the shortened season as an excuse. Those numbers just won't cut it. He was wholly uninspiring when we watched him in the opener against Washington State and left tackle Abraham Lucas, who's really not even a left tackle at the NFL level. Tony, I can't imagine it gets much better the rest of the way in terms of the film. Is there any hope for Rashad's draft stock now? Well, it depends on what you thought about it coming into the season. Now, he was graded as a fourth rounder by scouts coming into the year. I had said I thought he could move into the second day. I think right now he's lucky if he goes in the sixth round. You know, we talked about Sean Wade, his play in the national championship game, how he looked like he was going half speed compared to everyone else and just seemed like he was somewhere else. That was Rashad throughout the entire season. I mean, he looked like he'd rather be doing something else, whether it be fishing or playing pool or something like that. Showed no intensity whatsoever. Uh, it was obvious on film. Scouts on the West Coast said he was killing his draft stock. So here's a guy who entered the season as a solid fourth-round pick and a guy who was an outstanding pass rusher just tumbling down draft boards. One guy to watch, Jaden Grant, the cornerback, fourth-year junior who entered the draft. He's got outstanding size. Unlike Rashad, he showed a lot of intensity. He's instinctive, a guy who's better facing the action. But really, I think as we move towards the draft before workouts and things like that, you're looking at Jaden Grant being a fifth-round prospect and Hamakar Rashad Jr. being a sixth-round uh, prospect. No one would have thought that entering the season. Now, speaking of entering the season, we had two Stanford prospects graded as draftable before the year. Both of them, unfortunately, opted out this year, left tackle Walker Little and cornerback Paulson Adebo. Tony, other than those two, were there any Cardinal players that may have propelled themselves into the draft with their six-game performances in 2020? Well, they, got, they had two underclassmen declare for the draft, which was kind of surprising in the sense that 
Davis Mills, the fourth-year junior who's a quarterback, had a solid year. He didn't have a great year. He entered the draft. And people were telling me before the season that if Davis Mills had the year he was capable of and they expected, he could move into first-round conversation. That's not close to happening. Davis Mills has got great skills. He's shown uh, ability to be, be an outstanding passer. The problem with Davis Mills is he takes a little too long to pull the trigger. He shows some indecision in the pocket, which is going to kill him at the next level. But he's got those physical skills. So I still think he can go in the third round because someone will believe that they can coach the best out of Davis Mills. And then there's Simi Fahoko, who was one of Davis Mills' top targets last year, a big J.J. Arcega, white side type of a receiver, only a third-year sophomore, decides to come out for the draft. Again, like Davis Mills, I think it's a bit of a questionable decision. I think Fajeco is a fourth-round prospect, but he's more of a bigger possession receiver who, unless he really finds a way to improve his speed, I don't think he's going to improve his draft stock all that much. Now, USC's leading receiver in 2020 was not who most expected it to be. Sophomore Drake London went for 502 yards in six games, just ahead of Amon Ross St. Brown and Tyler Vaughn's. St. Brown did lead the team, though, with seven touchdown catches, and that includes four in one game against Washington State. USC had several other late-round prospects on their depth chart entering the season as well. What did you see out of the Trojans on film, Tony? Well, I saw two tremendous true sophomores in Drake London, who you mentioned, and Drake Jackson, the defensive end, these are guys who, when they enter the draft, they won't be el- uh, draft eligible until, until 2022, I think, are guys that are going to grade as first-round prospects. Elijah Vera Tucker, who initially opted out of the season, then decided to come back and play when it was announced that the Pac-12 would hold the season this fall, moved to left tackle, looked sensational. I mean, really improved this draft stock. I think he's a second-round guard, but he really looked good. The other kid who really impressed me was their uh, safety, uh, Talanoa Hafanga, who's got strong safety size. But when you look at him, he's not only a forceful downhill safety who can get up the field on the blitz, devastate ball carriers against the run, but he's also got solid ball skills, shows the ability to go sideline to sideline, makes plays when the ball's in the air, makes plays against the receiver. I don't think he's someone you're going to line up over the slot receiver. But he doesn't embarrass himself. He's not a liability in coverage. So I think uh, Hufanga, who I have graded right now as a third-round pick, is a guy who could surprise, could go even earlier. Another underclassman who uh, entered the draft, someone we talked about uh, uh, coming into the season, Elijah Griffin, the cornerback. I have him graded right now as a third-rounder. Terrific ball skills. Sort of a, a, a smaller – he goes about 5'10"-ish or so, but he's a thinner guy. I think a real good nickel back at the next level. Now, UCLA got seven games in this year, enough for Osa Odigizua to tally six tackles for loss and four sacks. Wide receiver Kyle Phillips, 38 catches for 370 yards and two touchdowns. He was the team's leading wide receiver, although tight end Greg Dolchich led the team with 517 yards and five TD catches. Left tackle Sean Ryan is another guy who was an intriguing prospect entering the season. Did you see, Tony, what you wanted from this trio, and did you have any other takeaways from the Bruins film? Well, Odigi Zoo is a terrific player. The question is, where is he going to play at the next level? Six, one and a half, 271 pounds. Is he a three technique tackle? Is he a defensive end in a four man line? Is he a defensive tackle in a four man line? Where are you going to play him? He's very explosive. He's got, a, you know, 
he's got a decent upside when you look at his quickness and his athleticism. I just don't know where you, where he's going to play in the NFL. One guy who really impressed the hell out of me was their running back. Demetric Felton came into the season graded as a free agent by scouts. I presently grade him as a fifth round prospect, someone who runs hard on the inside, goes about 190 pounds, plays much bigger than his size. He's got the speed to turn the corner. He's got a burst through the hole, shows the ability to uh, beat defenders into the open field. Also a terrific pass catcher out of the backfield. So I think in Felton, you're looking at a day three pick who can be a nice situational rotational type of back in the NFL. Now, lastly, Washington was supposed to play for the Pac-12 title, but due to a COVID-19 outbreak led to Oregon, but a COVID-19 outbreak led to Oregon replacing the Huskies. No Joe Tryon this season as he signed with an agent in August. Didn't play this year. We discussed that earlier this year as well. He wasn't the only talented Huskies defender heading into 2020, though. What did you see from Washington, Tony? Well, I I mean, the main guy here would be Elijah Molden. Uh, Some people have mocked him in the first round. There's no way he's going in the first round. Reminds me a little bit of a slightly slower version of Buda Baker. I think he's a good day two, maybe late second round safety. He's smart. He's intense. He flies around in the action, but he just has poor size speed numbers. I was a bit surprised that Kate Odden, the uh, tight end, went back to school. I have him graded right now as a third round selection. Mean blocker, who's also a terrific pass catcher. A guy who showed the ability to get down the field. I don't think he times well in the 40, but he plays fast and gets up and consistently wins out for the uh, contested reception, but also comes away with the easy catch. And that's it for the 170th episode of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us any questions and give any feedback that you may have as well. We'll be back next week as we change gears firmly from college football season to NFL draft season. But until then... On behalf of Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.